Welcome to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garrick Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Lund. Today, of all the days, I decided was the day. We're bringing on a guy that I just got to know more and more over the last probably five months or so, right, Seth? Mm -hmm. and. Yeah. Lo and behold, we're uh, we're having you as a guest on our podcast. Seth, as many of you know from our intro, is the owner, creator, inventor of uh, the Stupid Questions podcast, which we'll get into why you've named it that, etc. Um, yeah, sure. But Seth, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor and pleasure. This is my first other uh, podcast uh, showing or showing up guest appearance. stupid questions. Yes. Guest appearance. That's what they call that. Yeah. So you have been putting together a podcast called the stupid questions podcast. Now I, I want to get into the name, the, the inception of that and sure. why, what the goals are for you as, as a podca podcaster, athlete person. Um, but before all that, how's it going, man? It's going pretty good. I, uh, I just got back from, uh, trip on Tuesday or excuse me Monday night at like 1 a.m. So still recovering from that, but the trip was uh, phenomenal. I got to go spend a couple of days prior to this three-day retreat in Whistler, uh, British Columbia. Which Whistler's amazing. Uh, it's the first time I've ever been there, but unfortunately, it was probably like the worst conditions in the past decade. It rained the whole first day, which was oh. not uh, the best experience. Um, but then the next day it snowed a little bit, so that was nice. But um, yeah, the three-day trip was actually. One of the most transformative, honestly, moments in time that I have ever experienced. Um, the focus of it was kind of an informed situation where people were really educated in and around the idea of how to relate to oneself and, and personal growth, but specifically kind of honing in on trauma and things that you've experienced in the past and how you might be able to overcome those. So they gave a lot of really amazing tools and processes and yeah, I mean, there was a there was a cohort of about forty people, and I honestly can say, like, I fell in love with each one of those people. It was wow. such an interesting experience to to go through something like that as a group, and to to just see these people be humanized on a level um, that I I really I I don't say that like lightly either. I, from those who do know me, which probably not many people do yet, I'm a relatively critical um, and and quick to judge person. And this has really challenged that and transformed the way that I, I think I just see people in general. And I actually learned this one amazing fact that I'd love to share really quick. Please. And I didn't know this, um, but you know how like it's really hard for us to like look at someone in the eyes for oh. an extended part of time. I yeah. try to do that at airports on purpose and it is impossible. Yeah, yeah it, it literally is so hard. Like you get to like two and a half seconds and you're like, oh, I got to look somewhere else. Yeah. But one of the exercises they had us do was to like, like look into each other's eyes for 15 seconds. And, you know, especially if you're looking into a, a member of the opposite sex's eyes for that long, I'm like, this is inappropriate. I'm, this is not good. But like, I've learned I just, that like, I just fell in love with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I found out that after I think it's 10 seconds of looking in someone's eyes, statistic or not statistically, scientifically proven, your brain starts to give off a chemical that they call the love chemical and you start creating a bond. So I was like, wow, what if what if we did that with everybody? It would be super awkward, but. It, cr it creates this curiosity where you want to know that person. So, yeah, all of that to say it was uh, an amazing trip and experience and looking forward to continuing to process it. Um, 
and I think it really is going to up my triathlon training game as well, honestly. Wow. I mean, you, you opened this podcast as I knew you would. You opened it with such uh, a reverent kind of feeling and emotion. And I think that opens mm. the door into the type of guy you are. And I think as I've been getting to know you more, um, you're you're definitely deep. You're maybe I saw this this meme the other day. It was like introverted with selective extroversion or something like that. So I yeah. think <laughs> I think that you might ride that that canopy uh, quite often. So part of this sport is very spiritual for many people. It is a mm. transformative experience to be out there on your own, grinding away. But for what you've just described, it's about the personal connections that are mm. intermingled within all of us that we sometimes mask with training and more tasks. And yeah. sounds like you took away a lot of the noise, really, on purpose. Mm to focus on yourself. And and it seems like from, as I'm getting to know you, you put a, a large emphasis on putting the noise away and, and making sure that mm. you are a priority at least once a week to make sure you're taking care of business. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. And I don't want to uh, skip over the affirmation that you gave for kind of noticing that about me. Um, that does mean a lot. So thank you for sharing that. And then secondly, yeah, I, I wish that I had like one, kind of soundbite or a few sentences to explain like, oh, here's everything triathlon has taught me, but it's been an amazing experience because in not just triathlon with the podcast and then the greater experience of my life, it's a, it's a constant ever evolving understanding of what the past and present are and then what the future can be based on what I've learned um, just in radical experiences, everyday mundane experiences. Um, and I'll share just one tidbit that really does like apply to the biking kind of lifestyle that a lot of us have to live because the majority of our training usually gets done on the bike. So when I first started riding my bike um, years ago, it was quite a frightening experience because I, I was familiar with bikes because I grew up on a dirt bike and, you know, kind of the dirt jumpers and stuff, but never anything endurance. And then you get real skinny tires. It's like, okay, this is a little bit different of handle and feel and this, that, and the other. So I had a number of different reservations. Um, but as I started spending more and more time on my bike, um, my coach at the time who I started working with gave me these power workouts and, you know, these things were not easy. Some of them were easy rides, but I'd never really had any type of interval based training before. And when he was giving me those, I was like, man, this is hard. So then he invited me on this, uh, what I would consider at the time, like a very long bike ride. I'd never ridden anything over like an hour and a half. And he's like, Hey, let's go on this 300 bike ride. There's going to be, you know, nine of us going out. Um, we're going to do this like 60 so mile ride. And, I was super nervous. I actually felt um, probably as nervous the night before as I would before a race. Like I was, I was like, oh, I got to eat right. And, you know, I, I, I had a lack of education and knowledge. I had like all of these like very solid foods and didn't have electrolytes down, didn't know anything. But anyway, I went on this ride and we get in 10 miles and I'm like, this is the hardest thing ever. Um, I get dropped mile 15 so bad that they wait for me and all i'm thinking about is like the pain that i'm experiencing looking down at my front wheel and as i start to approach them that all nine of them are waiting for me to stop play and i'm like oh great like this literally the oh, smallest guys. i'm not a huge guy like i'm already like yeah and i i roll up on them and i can't unclip in time i fall on two of them i make them fall and you know it's just like this super humbling but embarrassing moment where i was like all i could think about was the pain i was experiencing I did finish that ride. Luckily, I knew where I was and I got dropped so hard. Someone came back to me. I was like, dude, just go on. Like, I know where I am. Like, let me just wallow in this 
just sad moment that I'm having. And I got back home and I was like, wow, that was like a horrible experience, but I felt really good that I did it. And as time went on and on and on, I had this realization probably about a year later, I went out for a ride, literally bit more power than I'd ever put down before. Comparatively, I was probably like averaging, I'm a small guy, 120 some pounds. I was averaging on that ride, maybe 130 watts. This ride, it was like three hours long and I was averaging close to 200 and when I went out for my warm up, I realized like I was holding these power numbers that I had never held before. And I was able to kind of look up and, and not just focus on the pain of my wheel, but like look further ahead and see the trees and hear the birds and take in the rays of light. And I realized like, that's so interesting because I, in the beginning, I was feeling that intense pain and all I could think about was like my immediate surroundings. But as I gained that tolerance and that endurance over time, I was able to look beyond myself and like get outside of my own head and the pain I'm feeling and still putting out the same amount of power still going through that same trial but being able to look further ahead and like take it in that that really does kind of sum up I think my triathlon journey is that with each step going forward I realize that perspective changes so radically the more you gain and build upon yourself did you prepare that ahead of time did you use you went full circle I, no, I actually didn't prepare that ahead of time, but I have given a talk before where I talked about that specific story as it relates to other things. Um, but it was like I, I live my life in in moments like that where I, I try to really articulate them in my own mind and then take, say them out loud because I think there's a lot of power in being able to have a thought, but then to speak that into existence because it's really quick. I don't, you've probably had this experience. You think of something, yeah. you say it out loud, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. Or you say it out loud, and you're like, wow, that was the stupidest thing I've ever said. <laughs> like, yeah. Most of the time, it's the latter for me, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but I, st I won't stop. So yeah, we're all there. Seth, to your story's credit, we've all been there. I think in some some relative language or inform information that we've all gone through, through feedback systems we have, we've all wanted to die on a ride and felt like the biggest piece of you know, trash dragging everybody down mm -hmm. in some way, whether you're getting two or three flats and everyone's like, man, another flat, it's you again. Yeah. Like, it's, it's so relative. And I think that's really why this sport, this lifestyle, this mindset, this journey is really connecting us in a, in a way that we also put up blinders to because we're so busy mm -hmm. and we don't make time for anything else out of our selfish nature. So this mm -hmm. is a very human connection sport. Um, and to your points, that's why it's so valid. That's why you went to Whistler. That's why you are searching mm -hmm. for a bigger meaning for everything that you're doing. It's not just, I did it. I'm done. You want to learn. And I think that's yeah. really where, where most of our listeners are. And, I, and that's why we're having you on today to talk about it on, on a big level. Um, and before we get too far ahead, I do want to backpedal just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Seth Hill, where did you come from and how long have you been in the sport? How many years ago since that first ride? And and then please dive into Stupid Questions podcast. First yeah. and foremost, I want to know why you named it that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, I guess, yeah, my name is Seth Hill. I'm 31 years old, five foot, five and a half inches, 125 pounds, proud of that. Uh, grew height up weight. being, Yeah, height and weight. Uh, definitely grew up a smaller guy. Um, I grew up in a relatively good home, I think, until um, I was about 16. You know, it's interesting when we're kids or when I was a kid looking at the world it's very black and white we we look at our adult surroundings and we're like oh yeah they are 
they are it. Even though I may not like it, they are the the source of correct. And, you know, as I got older, um, life started to happen. Just to be completely transparent, like when I was 16, my dad passed away. He took his own life. And it was it was at that point that I think I really woke up for the first time. I mean, I'd had other experiences in my younger past where like were impactful moments, but that one really shook me for obvious reasons. And it really forced me to look into the mirror in the, in the coming years and ask the question, like, who I am, am I? Well, who do I want to be? Mm-hmm. Um, because as that happened, I was I was forced to kind of deal with other things that were bothering me in my past. And, and I came forward about them to my mom. And I mean, it was really ugly in the beginning. I, I told her like, hey, you know what? I've been struggling with this. Um, I was abused, I think, by someone in our family. Um, when I was this age and I don't know even how to talk about this, but it's all coming forward because of what happened with dad. And I just feel like I'm completely overwhelmed with my internal mind and I don't know how to deal with this. And that moment was when I first realized, especially like right after my dad passed, there was a couple of key people in my life who were like, Hey, you have to talk about it. And one thing I did know about my father is like, he never talked about his problems. Like he went to therapy every once in a while, but he was very inconsistent and he wasn't like voicing what was going on. And I realized like, okay, my greatest fear, and I kind of figured this out even this weekend, but my greatest fear at that point in life was I don't, I feel like I, I will become the men who have abandoned me and hurt me. And I, and I don't know why I fear that, but that is my greatest fear. So I worked really hard for the next like six years off and on trying to figure out life and went through like some very odd, crazy times. Like high school is already complicated enough, let alone you throw on some other junk like that. Like, yeah, like I'm super late bloomer. Everybody else is changing. I'm not changing, but somehow like my childhood was robbed from me in a sense. And I'm like, well, I have to be the man of the house. And there's just all of this muck just going over and over in my mind. But I realized like I got to start talking about this and try to figure it out. And I worked through in the beginning stages, I say like the stages of grief. And I think there's five of them. I can't quote them all, but I know that they can be repeated and they can be experienced at different lengths. Um, like anger, denial, resentment, kind of mixed with anger, um, grief and sadness. And I, for a long time, I spent like a lot of this time in anger and then denial. And I, I was not able to kind of come around to this place of acceptance probably for like six or seven years. And as I did, I was like, okay, I should probably work on these other things. Um, and then the next point in my life, I think that was like a big shifting turning point was I got to college Um it's really interesting. I, my, my senior year, I was dating this girl and her dad was a, a construction owner like of a house is like multi-million dollar homes. And if anyone knows where the Biltmore estates are in North Carolina, near the Biltmore mansions, like I these think, are, I think the name Biltmore sounds fa- yeah, a little fancy enough. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> he's building these like $5 million homes. And I was working on these construction crews with uh, his different foreman. I would get to do some electrical stuff. We did some like framing and general like plumbing and and other stuff um and that experience was a good one because i was like okay well this is this is very plain to see i'm dating this girl uh she's obviously a much better person than me this man has no sons i'm gonna go to college get a construction management degree i'm gonna you know take over dad's business and then and farewell happily ever after yada yada i get to college she realizes wow you jumped to a lot of conclusions there a lot of conclusions, but they were so clear in my mind. <laughs> I was like, this is definitely how it's going to happen. She got to college. She broke up with me. I was not a very good person. So it it's all worked out. And we're actually relatively good friends now. Uh, one second. Someone's going to drive by here. So you may hear a car in the background. Apologies. 
I don't know. I think your, your mic is so good, man. Oh, no, perfect. Misdepression. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, we broke up and I got to college. I screwed around for two years and then I had the opportunity. One of my friends, um, she doesn't even realize how impactful this was on me, but she was like, Hey, um, you should go be a student missionary through our, through our school. Cause like they encourage people similar to the Latter-day Saints, like go spend some time in mission service. Some people go do like a college abroad and some people go do missions and some people just don't do anything. And I, for whatever reason was like, yeah, I think I should do that. And I'm a, I'm a relatively like religious and spiritual guy. And I thought about this in like prayer and, and just kind of chomped on it for a while. And long story short, um, I, I did not come from a wealthy background at all. Like I was paying my way through school and by paying my way, I mean going into crippling debt. Um, but it just so happened that someone made an anonymous donation to pay for all of my expenses and the the semesters that I had not caught up on. I had no car and I was staying at the university and there was a, a person up the road who not only offered me a job, but my coach for the acrobatic team that I was in college, he had a basement that he allowed me to stay in. And it was with walking distance. Like literally it was a street over. I hopped a cattle fence and I walked across the field and that was my job. And I was building this house all summer. And so it was like all of these very serendipitous divine things happened where I was able to go and have everything kind of figured out. And I was like, great, well, I'm going to go be a missionary I was a horrible person, honestly, um, but I was like, I'm going to give up self in this. And honestly, I had this thought in my mind, like, I'm going to be a, a light in a dark area. I'm going to go help these people. Mm -hmm. And I, I really kind of subscribe to this idea that whenever I go or wherever I go, I'm going to hop on a plane and all of my troubles and kind of issues are just going to kind of fade in the West type of a situation. And I got over in the Philippines. Um, actually, it's kind of crazy. I'd never gotten drunk before, did any drugs, but like literally the night before I got drunk for the first time, like very irresponsibly drunk. Yeah. And then, drunk. yeah. And the next day I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go do this thing. Just like in, in the, in the sphere that I was living in, like a very awkward juxtaposition. So I got over there and honestly, man, to sum up nine months, um, it was the hardest time of my life, but it was literally the greatest time of my life because it forced me to, to look at, in the, at one huge thing that was, well, no matter where I go in the world, my problems are going to follow me and they are, they sit within my chest and in my mind, they don't, I can't just drop them off somewhere and say like, sayonara, I'm, I'm a changed person. So it really forced me to, to look at the perspective. I mean, living in a different culture, a different way of living life and approaching life and viewing life from the climate to the income level, to just how people commuted to and from work. Um, really shifted me and forced me to think. And I met a friend over there. His name was Gray. Um, and he had, was 18, was taking Harvard summer classes, had his own bottled water company, and just on the outside looked like this man who I had never known. I'm a, I was about to be 21, and I was like, well, what it was so different about this man? And then he told me as we became better friends, he's like, well, my dad co-founded um, Oakley Sunglasses. Ah. And so my interest for very opportunistic and terrible reasons in the beginning was, I mean, I did enjoy him as a friend. We got along great, but I was suddenly very interested in him. And I wanted to know like, what is this mindset that he carries, which is obvious, you know, what 18 year old has their own bottled water company and goes to Harvard. Um, not many that I'd ever met in my sphere. And I, it, it challenged me to be a better person. Um, along with some other stuff that I was dealing with. And I started to really tackle addictions and, and all of these things. And, um, you know, 
is that happened? I started reading like an accounting textbook that someone brought over. I am not a studious person and I, I hate school, but I was so motivated to change something that I was just grabbing onto any piece of knowledge I want. I tried starting a little business over there where we made sugar water popsicles and sold them to kids. It's like probably the worst kind of business that made absolutely zero dollars. But it really like it inspired me. So I got back to the U.S. and I had an entrepreneurship class and this is all going to come full circle relatively soon. Um, but I had this entrepreneurship class and right before I left, um, I had this idea. I was like, I want to start a company and there, I, I want to have a hammock that has insulation on it um, so I can go camping and like not be cold because I went camping and I, the insulation got real thin underneath um, when I was on this lake and the wind coming through and I got what I called CBS or cold butt syndrome. <laughs> and anyway, I took this class and in the class, uh, they were like, hey, you know, you're going to make a prototype and you're going to start a business. So I was like, well, maybe. And Gray's dad, the Oakley guy, his dad lived just down the university um, Hill and he came by and Gray and I had became really good friends and he actually kind of had a couple of like life-saving moments together because he had diabetes and sepidus and he like almost died because he didn't have the right yeah. fluids in the Philippines. Probably anaphylactic just... shock, et cetera. Yeah, it was, I, I still don't know a ton. His dad started a foundation to like deal with that wild disease. Um, and anyway, so we became very close friends outside of him and what his dad did. We just became very close relatively quickly over the nine months Anyways, dad came to visit the school and I just pitched him this idea, not thinking anything of it. I just knew that he had started a business. I was like, hey, what do you think of this? And, he's, and I told him and I was super pumped. And he's like, oh, cool. And then he left. But then like a week later, he's like, hey, I talked to Gray, um, his son. I was like, I'm going to give you guys a little money to start this. You guys should partner together. Uh, Gray has some experience in this and you guys should try to make something of it. So long story short, again, um, I started dating this girl and her uncle who lived right by her house, which I got invited to her house for Thanksgiving. He had a commercial sewing machine. Gray's dad provided funds for me to buy all these different fabrics and stuff. And I picked this guy's brain on how to make a hammock because he actually was like big into this scene. It's what they call Graham Weenie community. It's like they're making really lightweight camping stuff for camping. And I pulled all this stuff together over Christmas break, Thanksgiving break, and then Christmas break, made a couple prototypes one thing led to another, you know, fast forwarding, I get through college and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this full time. I started a Kickstarter. We sold like $20,000 worth of hammocks. I wasn't like super great, but it was enough to give me the confidence. Like, okay, I need to do something about it. So I found a manufacturer in the U S Kickstarter ended manufacturer calls me. Well, I show up actually to this manufacturer that I was going to use. I walk in the door and I had probably five or $6,000 worth of materials there that he was supposed to make this sample because I had samples that I had made with someone and they were supposed to produce what's called the gold sample, which is like the production ready. Here's what we're going to make on the on the line. And I showed up and the dude like ruined half my materials. His laser cutter cut it all wrong. He had no progress. And not only that, he had been like ghosting me for weeks and it was an hour and a half away. So I couldn't just go. Didn't even have a car at that point. So I was like, oh my goodness. And this is actually kind of the amazing part of the story. I thought this was more common, but I had some friends or not even friends, but people reaching out to me that saw my Kickstarter from China and they're like, Hey, we can make this. Mm -hmm. And I was like, eh, I don't know. You know, I still kind of had this mentality like China made in China, China's cheap. Blech. So anyway, I called them up like the next day. Cause I have $20,000 of money. That's really not mine with nothing to deliver. And I was like, Hey, um, I'll come visit. And they're like, great. So come here, we'll, we'll pick you up and we'll bring you to the factory and we'll tour you around and you can do it. 
And it was amazing, Nick, because I, I only paid for my flights. As soon as I landed in Ningbo, is the name of the city, they picked me up free of charge. They took me to the factory. They fed me. They put me up in a room. They toured me around a factory. They paid for my bullet train tickets to a competing factory. Then that factory, the people picked me up. They showed me around to all the suppliers, and I went to another factory. And I was just so blown away because I, when I got on the plane to go to China, I hadn't made no money, but I felt like I made it. Like yeah. for me, I grew up watching How It's Made and Mr. Rogers' little segment where they have the making stuff. And I was like, that's that's who I am. <laughs> and I got there. I was like, this is it. Like I, I've totally made it. Um, but I got there again, long story short, fast forwarding. We ended up doing work with them for a number of years. Um, we had what we call the POs made where we made a purchase order for a number of hammocks. We sold through the lots. We had a second edition come out. Time went on and then COVID happened and it all went bust. That's the short end of the story. Um, and so after that was ending, I really started to realize like I need to, I need an identity change because I felt like so painted in a corner that I was the hammock guy. Everyone knew me for that since college. And it was the first thing where I had come up with my head and people saw value in. So a lot of my identity was wrapped up in this thing, which is going to the podcast really quick. Why I love asking the question, like if you were to lose your leg tomorrow or your career was to end tragically tomorrow, whatever, or when it does end, how, what do you want to do next? Because I found it so fascinating that I had such a struggle with this. And if I was an athlete for my entire career life, and then all of a sudden one day because of age, when I have, 70% of my life yet to live, it was shut down. I would, I would be devastated. And I know that like a lot of Olympians struggle with this. So that's, we'll go to the podcast in a second, but that's why I love asking that question. But I was like, I, I need to figure out who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I sat in a Walmart parking lot, uh, after it was actually during COVID and I talked to my wife, I was like, I think I'm going to close it down. I can't get to China because of COVID. Um, and I started selling PPE because my Chinese friends were like, hey, you know, if you need stuff, let me know. And I ended up shipping around the world, mostly in the U.S., to a bunch of dental offices and hospitals like PPE. And that was like this thing I started overnight in March 2019, whatever COVID started. And I did that and that had kind of come down. And I was like, what am I going to do next? I, I got to figure something out. And I had no control. I felt like I could control the PPE thing after it had its way, but I didn't have control of that. Mm -hmm. That the market changed. And I was like, I have no idea. So then I started to like get into triathlon a little bit. One of my friends, so my wife and I, the, how we first spent time together was we did a college uh, little sprint triathlon and it was a great experience. One of my friends in film school did a little documentary of it. I, maybe I could link that. It's really hilarious to kind of look back and see it, but it was this whole, you know, thing. And my, my, me and my wife did this college level triathlon sprint together and that's how we got to know each other and I, I thought back on it I was like that felt really good and I thought about like training and like what I could become I was like that's something I think I could control and my cousins asked me hey do you want to do this triathlon again with us the one I'd done this would be like my second time doing it and I was like yeah sure so I trained quote unquote I did the race I got there one of my friends who I or my cousins who I trained to do it with he had just come off doing Chattanooga 70.3 Mm. Um, a week before and I thought I was going to beat him like I really believed that I was going to beat him he destroyed me by like 20 minutes on a sprint course so you know you know that's bad <laughs> and then I I decided in that moment I was like I'm going to do a 70.3 and I'm going to beat all of them <laughs> and so that that really set the fire um, to start training and you know it's crazy Nick I, I sat in in this little tiny home here on my bike with like one of those very cheap just fluid based trainers um, spinning for 45 minutes. And I had this wild belief. I was like, I think, I think I could be a professional at this. I'm, I'm like 20, 
how old was I at that point? I was like 24, 20. Yeah, 20. No, no, I was like 26. What am I saying? I was much older. And I had this wild idea and I didn't tell anybody about it. Um, but as I started to progress, I was like getting a little closer and started to believe. And I'm, I feel like I'm sort of on the cusp. I'm not super talented, but it's like within the grasp and the different ways you can do it and the different pathways. So yeah, that's how I got into triathlon and it gave me a sense of control. It gave me a sense of identity. And honestly, in the beginning, it was very selfish. I was running from my old identity and trying to find a new one and scramble. But then I realized, oh man, like the values I had for Sway, which were like the comfort, security, and warmth, which we can get into that if you really want to, um, those those values were not just the company, like everything that underscored that company and underscored the other work I've done. Like that that is me. And I can transfer that over to anything else. Um, and yeah, so that's how I, like, I wanted to start the podcast. I started it, um, less than a year ago, probably like last June or July, I had with my friend decided to record a podcast and he has a word of the year, a phrase of the year. And I, the year before was like the year of cardio and he did like just crazy cardio things. He hated cardio. So he went out of his way and then he had a year of rejection before that. And he like just applied for these CEO positions, which he made it to like, he's 20 something, made it to like several fifth fourth, fifth interviews, never got any job, but I challenged him. I said, how about this is the year of giving? And in every month, starting in January, you give a hundred bucks and the next month it doubles to 200 and the next month you go to three and then all the way up to 1200. And we're going to, we're going to record that story. And halfway through, which was an amazing podcast, it's called give well, if you wanted to listen to it, um, just 12 episodes once a month. Um, I realized like, man, I love doing this. Like I love talking to people and, and, and pulling from them their story and trying to figure out what makes them tick. And I had a list of what I consider cool names. Um, and I was like, this pe- 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 people would be interesting to talk to. And Victoria Brumfield, the current CEO of USAT, sent out an email about something saying she was the new CEO. And I was like, this is my opportunity. I, I emailed her. I was like, Victoria, you should meet with me. I'm a cool dude. Um, said something like that. And I got blown off. So I emailed again. And then her assistant got with me and I set up a time. And after that conversation with her, I told her about the idea and she's like, you should totally do it. So she ended up being like our fourth, fifth, sixth guest or something. Um, and, and it's just caught wildfire. I I chose the name Stupid Questions because it comes kind of twofold. One, from a place of insecurity, because I, I was trying to like really just like say, yeah, like, I don't know what I'm going to ask, but these might be a stupid questions. But I want to try to dive into who you are. And the other side of it is like, there's really no such thing as a stupid question you can ask questions stupidly. I think that's possible. But if you have a genuine curiosity about someone's life, I really don't think you can go wrong because they'll kindly correct you if it's phrased incorrectly and they'll give you what they're, how they understand it and you can kind of go forward. So that's how I came up with the name. And honestly, Nick, I, I didn't focus, I didn't want to focus purely on triathlon, but of all the people I reached out to, the people within businesses, within endurance sport or, you know, like Oakley or precision fuel and hydration or, you know, the other ones, uh, um, Olympians and endurance athletes within triathlon, they started saying yes. And then um, one other area of focus that I have some future guests coming in are like musical artists and people who are in that realm. And those are just three areas of my life that I absolutely love and love the people that surround them. So that's kind of why I've focused on that. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of where who I am, how it brought me to this point and stuff. Wow. I think... I think your story, um, it bodes to the endurance athletes kind of time frame, mindset, likeness. I think we've all got a lot of processes to work through. Mm-hmm. And for most of us, I think, 
you know, think about the type of people who are within triathlon, right? And the ones you've interviewed who you've found so valid to, to bring their story to light. Most mm. everybody has a really, really good why as to why endurance sports or triathlon is, is part of their daily routine. And I think it, it's a connective language. It's, mm. it's a, it's a community of struggle, but without finding brick walls. Like I think our entire community is just bound to finding good solutions together individually. We don't give up. We yeah. love the process. We love to look inside and ask, where did I actually go wrong? What, what, how did I ruin that relationship? How did I mm. mess up that race? So I think your introspection and your ability to kind of deal with the trauma, I think we all have trauma, but I think the level of trauma that you've been able to display and be confident and compassionate about it, mm. it bodes well for everything within our sport. We, I, ca I can't tell you the amount of people that I still have in my life who hosted me when I was like my first year as a pro athlete in mm. Europe and treated me like family, wow. took me around and made me feel welcome. And I think that's why you found your, your space within triathlon, because I think most people here are genuinely like, I've been through some shit. I know you have too, but ultimately yeah. like we're talking the same language, man. We yeah. want to, we want to make sure that we're living the best version of ourselves because we're not afraid. We're not running anymore from mm. our mistakes. We're learning from our mistakes. And by the way, how can your mistakes help me? And I think as a culture of triathletes or endurance athletes, that's why it's like this little way of life. Everyone is really kind of being pulled into like a gravity well and mm. for you to, to find it so valid to turn a lifestyle, a podcast, um, you know, finances, time towards what are you made of? You know, I think most athletes I coach are very well-established people within their careers. They've, they've done the big doctor, lawyer, pilot, everything. Mm -hmm. They identify as a triathlete. They've been, mm -hmm. they identify as an endurance athlete and they connect more with people like us. So, so for sure, what I want to say is like, great job, man. I mean, it takes a lot to, it takes a lot to look in the mirror. It takes a lot to look at that mirror with a micro a microscope and then kind of pick mm -hmm. apart what you're most afraid of and apply it to your daily life, your daily training, your daily why, and to build a relationship, to have a, um, a spouse who supports you. So Man, it really seems like, you know, I'm sure there's so many pitfalls and terrible nights and horrible experiences and, you know, on the brink of extinction opportunities, we could all have gone down, but we all mm. chose hard work, perseverance, you know, building, you know, having COVID destroy your business in, in the way it did, that must have been devastating. Most people have a hard time rehabilitating after that. And they take years and years and they maybe destroy their life in the meantime. So to come out of it and to try to expand and give back, like without going any further, just, I think you're doing, you're doing our sport yourself. You're doing everything that we all stand for justice. So your podcast stands for something really cool. And I think that's why like, you know, transparently I, I coach you now, but I know your work mm -hmm. ethic. I know your question, your attention to detail. And I really find it valid in the big, big picture of why we're doing this because it's, it's a lot of surface, you know, capitalism yeah. by this, who's popular, who's cool, who's got the best race results. But at the end of the day, 
who's having the most authentic experience mm. and growth opportunity and you for sure. I mean, I can't, I'm sure the list of things that you could put on paper of, man, this changed my life, man, this changed my life, man. I could have, I could have quit. I could have given up. Mm. It's, 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 you're an icon for a lot of listeners to know we're all going through some shit and you should. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for that. Uh, being kind enough to, and willing to share that. I think that's, that's super meaningful to me. And yeah, like with the podcast, I, I'd say that y- you learn a lot or I've learned a lot by talking to now we've only released, I think going on 30 episodes this week, but I've talked to probably close to 50 people and just, yeah, like you said, we've all got a story. Mark Allen, I just re- put out like a six minute video today, actually of him diving into the fact that we are all just people and we all have a story and sometimes like with the eye contact thing, it gets uncomfortable if you ask a little bit deeper of a question. But I would even say in my experience, nine times out of 10, if I dive in to try to ask that uncomfortable question of someone, it may be hard for them to share it. But in the end, we always come through that on the other side, more connected, more people understand the power of vulnerability and like the, the power of connection that we all have because we are all human. We all live on this crazy messed up earth where People are making stuff in labs. I don't want to get canceled, but like you got COVID and everything else. And it's like, come on, like what, what is really important? I'll tell you what's important, talking to each other, not being silent. Um, And yeah, like the number one thing for, I think that really sets stupid, sets stupid questions apart is being able to, that people are willing to answer the questions that are just outside of the norm. I, I do love listening to how you do training plans and sports nutritionists and all that stuff. But what is most interesting to me is like, who are you? Why are you doing what you're doing? Like what, when you get up out of bed each morning, what are the critical forces that are in your head that you're fighting and how do you combat them? Like, those are the very like fundamental things that I think no matter your age, your walk of life, like anybody can listen to that and be like, oh, wow. Like I, I, I struggle with that. Or maybe I should be open about that or, you know, whatever it is. Well, to, to your point, I think the biggest thing we've lost since COVID, since even maybe the last five, six years is the ability to connect with each other on a very mm-hmm. personal level. We've kind of lost a lot of that. I think we're so surfaced and we're so fear-based and we're not really giving our full gusto into like, what, how did you grow up? Why are you yeah. the way you are? Like, we kind of don't ask those questions very much anymore. How many, I mean, I've got best friends who I'm trickling in information over the years, but you know, we don't sit around a bonfire anymore and just like have it mm. out, like really get to the, to, to the really depth of ourselves. And I think we're almost yeah. scared to, because vulnerability has been just shoved down our throat as like a big weakness. And I think that's yeah. why this sport, the struggle, um, your ability to tap into ask these, you know, very smart questions, I'll say, are are mm-hmm. eliciting a lot of responses that we just haven't really been, you know, those are the the human nature things that we've kind mm-hmm. of put a barrier to. So I think, you know, back getting back to the triathlon aspect of this kind of genre and podcast that we're mm-hmm. hosting right now is, you know, when you're doing this day-to-day grind, when you're putting yourself out there, when you're setting goals. You know, do you still like really go as deep or are you kind of like still vulnerable to the surface level, not really that meaningful social pressures, or are you even with everything you've gone to, you know, how hard is it to really separate yourself from 
hey, this is meaningful to me or this is meaningful to everybody else. You mean from like a, a triathlon training perspective? Like yeah, like, I mean, because everyone's social and looking at who's doing what and why you're not yeah. doing this. Like, is that still part of your struggle? Um, I'll say that I, I don't fully know in, in, in this. So it, because it's changed when I, when I did start triathlon, like it was a very self inward focused, I'm going to do this for me. And I didn't even consult my wife when I signed up for the first Ironman. And that was, <laughs> let me tell everyone in, in, the, in who's listening, that is a mistake. Don't do that. Um, and it put a lot of pressure on our relationship actually. And, and subvertly my relationships with my friends and stuff, because I was dedicating, you know, even though it was, um, ignorant amount, ignorant amount of time. Um, I, I was very uninformed of what proper training would be. Um, I, I did sacrifice relationships for that. And as I've done it more, like I really did take a step back and kind of look at it. Cause I realized my wife was getting a little upset. And my coach at the time who, after about a year started coaching me, uh, he's like, Hey, you know, like family's number one and you got to keep it that way. I've seen this sport divorce people and that's not where you want to go. So I did take a step back and, Full transparency, our marriage, like around year four, was not doing great. We had some crazy stuff happen, and you know, we kind of just started being numb with each other. And you know, the word divorce, the word divorce came up, and I was like, okay, we got to really figure this out. Like, I'm going to counseling, you're going to counseling. We'll go separately, and we'll go together. And we started doing that, and we worked through it. And one of the things that I realized was like, okay, this this is taking precedence over not just my wife's relationship, which is most important, but my spiritual relationship my friendships and my work even like I wasn't applying myself. This was like, I was living and breathing it, um, which did have some upside, but it was mostly downside. Like the, the balance was very uneven. And as I took a step back, I realized like, okay, I need to refocus. And I talked to my family, mostly my wife's family, because they grew up doing triathlon. Like her uncle was doing triathlons when they first started back in the eighties and in high school. And it put a huge strain on his uh, life and marriage with his daughters. And, you know, I not, I'm not going to say his name, but to be completely frank, like something that he's even had to, I think, deal with to this day to a degree. Um, and so I realized like, okay, I need to make a shift. So I sat my wife down and, you know, it was really interesting, Nick, because I, I, I was always worried that she was going to say no, but I realized that once I gave away the kind of the control or gave away the semblance of this is my thing, I'm going to do it she was much more supportive and now we like make time for each other more. And, you know, if she has a long day, I like I'll structure stuff around that so that we make sure that we're, you know, we're still linking up and we're having that relationship. So now um, it's moved from triathlon was all about me to triathlons, more about a family thing. And and now that I'm a little bit more in the public light, um, I actually am using triathlon more. Like I, I do vlogs cause I enjoy talking. It's, I probably talk too much. Um, and I'm doing the podcast because I love hearing people's stories and it's, it's stuff because I like doing, and, you know, I recently, I, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it. It's called EMDR therapy. It's like eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. It's, it's I've not heard of that. This is new. Okay. So it's a type of, uh, trauma therapy. Excuse me. It's bugged. Wow. Um, it's a type of trauma therapy where essentially you, you build a bank of positive resources and it does relate to triathlon. I'll get there in a second. You build these bank of positive resources mentally. It can be a person, place, a thing. It can be inanimate. It can be a feeling, a color, whatever. Whatever makes you feel a certain way. And then you go to this traumatic memory and you you think about it. And then you kind of bring in these positive things. For me, it was people and things. So I would like, when I got held at gunpoint, 
Um, I went back in, in, in PTSD counseling because that like wrecked me. And I brought in one of my close friends and I sat him in the back seat of the car in my memory where I was being held at gunpoint. And my friend is like the most optimistic person. Like I, there can be a horrible man in front of him and he chooses to see, well, maybe he just woke up bad this morning. I'm sure he's a good guy. I like and your friend. He, yeah, his name's Mitchell. Mitchell is the man. And he was, and I sat him in, in, in my memory in the back seat of the car as I'm doing this reprocessing, thinking about it. And he um, he was more positive. And it like lowered my intensity in my mind of how the story happened and went. And I still know it actually happened. But for whatever reason, when you do this EMDR, which is usually done with some type of bilateral stimulation. So I've done it with little like um, – gyrating like a vibrator things in each hand where it like makes a little a, a little sound or something so you can feel it or you can do it kind of with clicking sounds yeah you can do it visually not to be confused with hypnosis although there is some controversy around it it's really worked for me and now i know how to do that trauma therapy and it's interesting is the lady who came up with it she kind of stumbled upon it after she was going for long walks. She always found that she could process really well with long walks. And now the science actually does prove that when you do these types of bilateral stimulation, you're activating both sides of the brain in both hemispheres. And you're able to kind of bring in the emotional and the logical side and pair them together to eventually, if you know, if you're at a 10 trauma state, a scale of one to 10, you can, your goal is to reprocess it enough times to where you can bring that down to like a zero. I've had to about a one or two. Because uh, when I first told like being held at gunpoint story, especially like the weeks and months after it happened, every time I told it and I'd never experienced this with other things, I just felt exhausted. I felt like it happened again and it was just like I could not function. But now I can like tell the story and it doesn't bother me near as much. So back to triathlon. Now what I, I really do is when I go out, like I'll look at my workout and I'll be purposeful on that. But especially like the easier days when it's just like, you know, a couple minutes on, a couple minutes off or blocks, whatever. I will try to think about things that are going on. So, yeah, and, like, that's that's one form of it. But now, you know, after even after this weekend, I had realized, like, I had started to just really get in my head and stressing all the time about what's the best way to do something. Da, 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 da. I need to go faster. I need to go slower. It's like every, no matter where I sat on the spectrum, I was unhappy with it and it felt like I needed to be over there. So it's really kind of settled me to realize, like, okay, what's important, really? Well, it's important to to be active. It's important to go out and put the work in. It's important that when I show up, this is the big thing. When it's important to sh when I show up to race day, that I accept the physical state and the mental state that I'm in, and be positive. It doesn't mean like, oh, I feel depressed. I hate myself. Ugh. It's like I accept how I'm feeling. I own that feeling, and then I proceed. If and I'll do my best. And if it's not the best, like in terms of like what the now numbers I wanted to hit, that's okay. There's always going to be another chance to race and there's always going to be another chance to process it. But in the, in the grand scheme of things, like what truly matters, it's like people. Yeah. And to, and to talk with Nick, that's more important. I, I think that resonates with this community because that's exactly what we fall into all the time is the result, the end outcome, that pro, that uh, that outcome-based goal. When I told people I was going to do this and I'm accountable to that, and if I don't, I am a failure. That is the biggest problem I have with this sport sometimes mm. and that mindset in general. I mean, Seth, it's obvious you're, you're a wired problem solver from your entrepreneurial goals to create something better with what you've seen. I, I see that in, you know, that reflection 
in myself, even with what I try to do within the sport. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why your story is powerful because it isn't. And I've said this so many times to athletes who are just like, I, w- I want to sign up with you. I want to coach, um, but I want to go to Kona. I'm like, Oh man, if we, can we, can we just transform mm-hmm. this whole situation into an evolution of self? And mm-hmm. if you get to Kona or not, that's not going to make this program valid. Let's set some some process based goals that are going to show you what you're made of, how better of a better of a person, how you can grow, which problems you can solve, how you can take all these tasks to be a better mm-hmm. person, father, wife, whatever it is. Like that's what this is empowering everybody to do in this very, I guess, complicated world we're living in. I think this sport, this mindset, everything that you've displayed in your story it grounds us to a higher purpose of not even, not even totally spiritual, but just like getting back to self. What is the real reason you're seeking these things? And and it isn't for Kona. It isn't for yeah. external validation to go to the Island. And so you can talk about it and boast about it when someone says, well, did you go to that one in Hawaii? Oh yeah. That's the one I went to. Like, mm. that's not the reason you're doing this in my opinion or why it should be the main focus. And there's probably, half and half who really buy into that. But I think for what you've displayed, the story, the charisma that you've brought into why this sport has been transformative for everything you're doing, and especially since you're processing trauma, by the way, this whole time, like you're using Mm -hmm. sport, you're using these tools that we're putting in front of you as, as you and I, as a team to kind of help conquer everything. And I think that that's the entire, that's the why we do it. You know, that's the why it's not, so we can go to X it's so we can feel and learn. I think one of my favorite movies is the secret life of Walter Mitty. And mm. it's mainly my, one of my favorite reasons because it's how I feel based on the music, the cinematography being in Iceland, which is one of my favorite places, but also like yeah. the motto of life. I think, you know, to feel, to live, to transform. I, I don't remember it. You know, I can't quote it, but I think that's really what you and I and and everybody like us are really trying to find with yeah. this realm of self truth, perseverance, and obviously, mm-hmm. you know, it can go as deep as the meaning of why this is even happening to begin with. Like, it's got to be yeah. about people, and I think that's the the biggest message is like this sport, the connective, the community, the the ecosystem we create on a day-to-day basis it's about people and i think that's Mm -hmm. like the most powerful thing that you and i can say right now right yeah yeah 100 and just to kind of build on that even a little bit further one thing that i've realized recently is so in the way that i grew up i was very uncomfortable with this idea of self-love um, because the way that I grew up in the paradigm and the worldview that created that was created around me was very much like self-love is a selfish thing. Don't be selfish. Love others. And what I'm realizing, especially after this weekend, I don't know I keep going back to that, but I, I truly believe like this was the most transformative way of thinking that I've ever been exposed to by these experiences I went through there to quote the Bible. The number one book in the world. It's like, love your neighbor as yourself, okay? And I grew up in a very Bible-centric worldview. And the people I was around, they were like, but you can't love yourself. Like, they never said that, but they didn't teach me what that meant to love yourself. And I realized in marriage, 
I have nothing to offer my wife if my if my own cup is not full. If it's not full and overflowing, there's nothing to pour. There might be a little bit. And if I pour too much, then I'm empty. And then it's like we're both mad at each other. So yeah, after this weekend and, and just some of these things coming around, I'm like, wow. Like if I'm supposed to truly, which I think is a rule that is extra biblical, meaning it is way outside of religion, loving your neighbor as yourself. You means you have to know how to love yourself. And I realized that I have been, Nick, I've been dead for so long to myself because I have not been taking the time to think about what what do I actually need to feel loved and accepted? I had, I told you about that fear earlier of like, I'm going to be like these men that I was, you know, abused and, and, and abandoned by. And I realized like I was living out of fear. So I had, I would I would consider myself even before this experience to be a relatively vulnerable person, but I still had a little bit of a wall. It's like, I'll, I'll meet you one time. We'll get pretty deep, but I don't, I probably won't let you come much further than that. And now I've kind of thrown that outside of my wheelhouse of thinking completely because I realize if I invest in that relationship with you and I'm vulnerable to you, if I let you know what's going on, you feel a love toward me that I want to reciprocate, especially as you share. And, and, and in order for me to, to actually have self-love, when you tell me something I'm good at, I need to like accept that because most people are quick to say like, hey, Nick. Let's just use it because it's a funny example. Hey, Nick, you have good abs. No, 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 I don't have good abs. Blah, blah, blah. Like it's genetics, man. I, I don't yeah. work out ever. Exactly. I worked out once. Exactly. Like people say that kind of stuff. And we 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 deflect all of these good things. And then honestly, whenever a bad comment comes our way, especially in this social media generation with a lot of popular athletes and stuff, so one bad comment ruins your entire day because we believe it. Yeah. And I realized like, oh, we have to like, I have to audibly. Take those critical inner voices, say them for what they are, and combat them literally audibly. Like, no, I am not fat. I am not this. I am not, you know, whatever. Whatever critical inner voice you had, I, mine was actually, I'm fat. And I combat that with, you know what? I'm actually a brave man. I am a compassionate man. I am that. And whenever people take say something kind to you, accept it. Because that fills up that cup so you can give it to somebody else. So Yeah, you're fat. You're P-H-A-T. Yeah, exactly. Fat. Do you guys do you remember those shoes? Were you are you in my close enough to my age to remember? I'm older fat? than you. I probably had a pair. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have them? Do you remember them? No, I just saw them on commercials, of course. Didn't really put myself out there that much. Nice. Well, I never owned some because they were a little more expensive than what we could get. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. But anyway, yeah, self-love I it really is important. And I don't think that's to be confused with um like loving yourself like oh i don't know it's not a i'm hashtag. still trying to figure out what that is it's yeah it's gotta like, really mean something yeah it really does have to mean something it doesn't mean like i don't know like treating someone else bad because they treated you good so you can feel better about yourself it's like nah that's not that's not really it there's there's things and it's like an intuitive thing i feel like i need to chew on that more before i make a well, declaration i think it's just like pushing everything out to where you can focus on what you absolutely need at your core and even if that's like 10 minutes of absolute do not disturb on your phone. Like mm -hmm. I think the phone is just so toxic sometimes. And that's the how I decided like I can give myself self-love by being away from it, being away from mm -hmm. tasks. I oftentimes will equate my day's level of success to the amount of tasks. And I will feel good about my day mm -hmm. if I did tasks that were same even mundane, medial, um, you know, building towards some bigger picture. But I think like that, that definition, you just have to be aware enough to understand what it means and how to 
mm. acknowledge it. So like, I think, you know, we're coming up on, on the hour on this, but I think most importantly, Seth, the, the lessons, methods, um, you know, your storytelling has been great, by the way. I, I really appreciate how you've kind of packaged it and taken it to a level that we probably haven't really gone to on this podcast before in terms of dealing with trauma, introspection, mm-hmm. how it comes to triathlon, how it's a, still an evolution, how you never even feel like the point is to be perfect. It's the point mm-hmm. is to always just be the best that you can do with what you have. And I think that's mm-hmm. part of the culture's pitfalls is we've got to be the number one in the world. And the same thing to your point, like how many times have you given a, a, a triathlete a compliment? Whoa, you just won your age group, man. That was, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. And as a coach, I know for sure some of the responses are, oh man, yeah, that, I felt like I fell apart here. I didn't do this. It's like nobody is willing to celebrate. And I tell people, athletes I coach especially, you get one day really to celebrate finishing a race. I don't care if you fell mm-hmm. short by 100%. I don't care if you exceeded 100%. You get one day to relish mm-hmm. in that opportunity that you've set out to do whatever it was. But you, no matter what, you showed up. Yeah put your best foot forward and you've got to be representative of that work and you got to be proud of it because otherwise you've erased months of dedication, Mm -hmm. of perseverance, of growth. And I think Seth, like your story, your ability to kind of look back in the rear view mirror, obviously is, is it should be infectious. I'm sure your spouse appreciates it. I mean, I haven't met Mm -hmm. her yet where I'm going to meet her guaranteed. And I I can't wait to hear some of her side of the story, Mm. but I think ultimately like the message you're putting out there, the reason why your podcast is going to continue to grow. And obviously having Mark Allen on there, like I bought his book when it first came out and it was just like surf art and all kinds of spiritual, cool. Like such an eclectic man. Yeah. He's like turned into like the sensei of like, Oh yeah, man, just like, let it go. It's all, it's whatever, you know, like I, I I appreciate that. I think, we all need to have like different personalities we can pull off of. I like having the alter ego, like whether it's like a Chad or it's like uh my other alter ego is Richard Banger, and which translates to Dick Banger. I don't know why. It was from a movie. But I'm like, Dick Banger doesn't care. He he just gets out there, <laughs> he just rips it up. So I think yeah. you've got to find some some ways to categorize yourself for the moment. And dude, like you've got multiple hats that you've worn in life. And I think the message you've put out there is substantial. And I think that's why I'm super happy that you were able to bring it out today. And, you know, the retreat that took a lot of sacrifice. You put time, energy, money, time away from loved ones and and home. So that time you've messed in yourself, like, was that the best thing you've ever done this, this month? Yes, for sure. And I have to make a plug for my friend, Jared, who loves me very much because he called me in November. He said, I bought you a plane ticket and I bought you a seat to this. You have to go. I hope you'll go or else I have wasted this many thousands of dollars. <laughs> and so he did that, Nick, for eight of his friends. And oh. we have all come through this together. I have a picture of us together and it's like, yeah, amazing. So I can't take credit for taking this out of my schedule. I have worked on myself in the past, but I probably would not have gone and I'm I've I've signed up my wife and I'm going to sign up more people and I'll send you the information because you should go to and everybody and it's not even like oh you need this it's like 
we all deserve this thing. Yeah. Like a greater understanding. How often do we feel like we deserve to invest that much time in ourself? That's the hardest thing to do right now in this world. Yeah. Not enough. Two big zeros. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, man, I'll put all this stuff in the show notes. You can link it in. Uh, check it out. We'll be have the video podcast. We'll have it on our our just audio platforms. But make sure you check out Stupid Questions podcast. You've got some great guests on there. I know you're going to get more influential in this sport. Needs a lot of you know needs a lot of help when it comes off the surface. And I think you can kind of help bring us back there. And I think I can't, I don't know. I can't wait to see who you bring on next. Like you've brought on some pretty cool guests so far. Make sure you go check out Seth's podcast, but yeah, thank you. And follow and subscribe. We got to get those analytics up. I mean, that's the that's most right. annoying thing about everything we do within this space is we got to get clicks, um, you know, but in the next couple of minutes, Seth, what is, you know, cause I want to, I want to leave this on, you know, an, a shiny sunrise for you. Like, what do you want to do with all this? Where do you want to go? What What is a quick synopsis of what this means to you moving forward? When I first started reaching out to people to have on the podcast, I was blown away with how many people said yes and, and saw value in just my 56 character Instagram DM. Um, so, my, and as I've gotten into this more, I've realized that there's just such an opportunity to get these stories out so that people realize that they, they're not alone and that they're they're similar in the way that they think. But most importantly, I want to give a platform to people who have a story that is more than just Lucy Charles is the best triathlete in the world. Like, I, who knows Lucy's background? And let's see a raise of hands. Literally, probably not many people at all. I want these people to have a humanizing story to see like, that champion or whoever, and it doesn't matter if they're a world champion or not, but their story matters outside of what they do. And I, I want to offer that and give a platform to more people so that they can be authentic and real with who they are, no matter what they're doing. And that inspires people. That does so many things more than even inspire people. So that's what I want to do. I want to continue to build that platform and just meet some cool people, man. I love people. Like every soul is so precious to me. I see more of that every single day, especially after this weekend. Yeah, it's just, can I tell just one more short story? You, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So at this event, so I have two sisters. Like one of my sisters is 19. One of my sisters is like 26. 26 year olds having a baby. I'm the oldest. I'm a brother. At this event, we had a small group. And in that small group was a 19-year-old blonde-headed girl that was very similar in lifestyle choices and things that she was struggling with with my sister. And the other girl was dark-headed, um, same age, and struggling with like the same level of just stress and depression stuff that my sister's been struggling with. And I was like, wow, this is so fascinating. Because to be honest with you, Nick, the way that I have coped with um, – my family and the things that the choices that they have made is when my sisters especially make choices that I think are wrong. Um, I put up with it for a very short time. And then like, I realized, especially my older sister, cause we had a conversation about it. It's like, I kind of disowned her. I quit talking to her much. And coming from a, a brother and, and an only male in a family to my sisters that hurt her very much. And my recent, my youngest sister who's 19 has been recently making choices that I really don't agree with. And I think that they're really hurtful but after this event with these girls, I fell in the most beautiful way just in love with them as sisters because 
they explained their stories to me and I got to hear who they were at their core and they explained their relationships with their brothers and their fathers. And I just realized like, wow, I have such a responsibility and an opportunity to speak life into my sister's lives. Like I've started, I started to disown my youngest sister because of some of the decisions she's making. And as I held in, like in one of these girls, like I held her in my arms and we were just crying because she was in so many ways like my sister. And I realized in that moment and giving her that affection that I had been robbing my sister of so much love and opportunity to feel something that she arguably doesn't get to feel from anybody else in the family. And so like going forward, like that's what I want to do. I want to give that love to more and more people. And our my the culture I grew up in is like, oh well, I was just so uncomfortable with like any type of affection because I was like, I don't. It's like it's it's sticky. It's like I don't know how to deal with it. But you know what? I don't really didn't like it because it makes you feel good and it makes them feel good. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's 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 my mission. Like I want I want people to know that they're heard. They're especially women. They're understood. Women have it so much harder sometimes, especially with the dudes, I think, when they lose their father. So I just want to give love. That, that's that's it. So go I, love. I relate to that more than I ever would in the past years, having a 13-year-old kid mm -hmm. in my life who's, you know, struggling with all the kid stuff. And mm -hmm. she, even today, we got her her first blood draw ever in her entire life. And it was a three-week period of battle. So giving love, giving respect, giving honor to somebody else's experience, dude, that's like yeah. one of the best things you could do to help grow the the human culture. And we forget that every single day. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. For speaking of your daughter's life. So we need more good dads out there and yeah. a great one. Yeah. I mean, even ones who travel a ton and usually tired and smell bad but can make decent meals here and there <laughs> that's right it's important well seth thanks so much it's been a pleasure i'm sure we're going to have you on again because your vision story and uh your energy is something i want to make sure we carry on and of course we'll check out your podcast as you go forward but for now buddy thank, thank you. you so so much for being part of this podcast and we will make sure it is getting out there so talk to you soon buddy all right. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. Yeah. I got ish to do. Flying through the sky in my parachute. Dancing on the couch like I'm Tommy Cruise. On a one-man mission trying to see it through.